0: It was our first real test. Here was a real, honest-to-goodness battle with charging infantry, galloping artillery, guns spitting fire and roaring all around, shells falling thickly and shaking the earth, the cough of motorcycle dispatch riders speeding through the fires of hell and runners wounded, limping along to report and keep up communications. It was war, as we had read about and what a thrill it was to feel oneself a part of it corporal ernest lebranch 102nd field artillery 26th infantry division american expeditionary force seschepre april 1918 Hey, folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode SA5 Sechapre, Cherry Blossoms in Spring. In January 1918, the American Expeditionary Force's 1st Division entered the frontline trenches in the Vuevres, a region to the east of Saint Miel in the northeast of France. There, the eager doughboys Organized into a mammoth infantry division, 27,000 men strong, manned the trenches from Apremont les Forêts to Richecourt and Sechepré, and joining the French on their right at Filleray. These are small villages, and if you want to see them, point your Google Maps or a similar map tool to Saint Miel in France and look to the east. For further reference, Saint Miel is to the southeast of Verdun. The Americans began thoroughly learning the business of trench warfare under the tutelage of the French. They began to take casualties, although these weren't the first. The first three American men to be killed in action, Corporal James Gresham, Private Merle Hay, and Private Thomas Enright, had died to the southeast at batel le during a German intelligence gathering raid there. Eleven other Americans had been taken prisoner at that time. The Germans facing the Big Red One Division now wanted to do the same, to raid the enemy's lines and see what he could learn of this Sammy-come-lately-to-the-battlefield. With the area under the command of General Max von Galwitz, German units within the 78th Reserve Division were cleared for attack. Max von Galwitz. So, so far, this man has appeared in every battle we have covered here on the BFWWP. Uh, he served at Verdun, he commanded armies on the Somme, and here he is now in the Vuevre. Uh, this means that he is very much due some kind of episode on his own at some point. It's, it's coming, Max. Under the direction of Major Friedrich Bruns, a highly decorated officer who'd been in the war since its beginning, the Germans planned a quick raid into the American lines in the Seicheprey area using Stosstruppen and Sturmtruppen. In an overly simplified way that may get me a listener email disabusing me of such notions, I'm going to make a very, very broad comparison. Stosstruppen were shock troops, and were comparable to the U.S. Army Rangers, who are a cut above the rest. Sturmtruppen are assault troops, and this is like getting into U.S. Green Beret Special Forces ground. Sturmtruppen were the elites, but Stosstruppen units could also hold their heads high above those of the regular Frontschwein ranks. The first raid came on the 1st of March, 1918 and it was meticulously planned. It came as Sechapre. The Germans struck with an iron hammer. At 0540, hundreds of their guns split the early morning sky with lightning flashes as shells were shot towards the American-held trenches. All known American positions were targeted, and the Germans did the best they could with the knowledge they had. The German artillery barrage Was precisely planned. Within three minutes of its beginning, four companies of elite Sturmtruppen were blowing holes in the American wire with Bangalore torpedoes and rushing to the Bois Carré and the Bois de Remier. These men were intent on showing the fresh-faced Americans that this war was a man's game and that they had no part in it except to be that of the beaten side. German stormtroops rushed to American dugouts, where they stacked against the outsides and threw in explosive charges. Amidst the falling artillery and minenwerfer shells, German pioneers used Flammenwerfer to burn out other dugouts and positions. By 0548, eight minutes after the first shells had been fired, Germans were wreaking havoc and chaos inside American lines. But within five minutes... Of the opening of the barrage, American artillery launched a firestorm of its own. Determining that American frontline units were under attack, the artillery just behind put out a wall of fire. Many American gun batteries didn't wait for orders. Major McCormick of the 5th Field Artillery later said, as soon as I opened fire, everybody else thought the order had been given, and the whole brigade opened fire. The artillery response was only partially effective in that it didn't strike at the best targets out there. However, the rapidity with which the American gunners began sending rounds downrange came as a shock to the Germans. While it may have been a rather undisciplined response, the immediate, if uncoordinated, retaliation given by the Americans showed independent initiative coupled with an eagerness to get in on the action. In the line, the doughboys of the U.S. 18th Infantry reeled from the fast-moving German attack. Many dugouts succumbed to the grenade and flamethrower attacks, and the line in the Bois Carré northwest of Seycheprey was breached in three separate places. Some doughboys were unarmed and captured before they realized what was happening. But here, too, Americans and small groups began to immediately fight back, They offered stubborn resistance that similarly shocked the German stormtroopers. American troops trapped in their dugouts preferred to fight to the end and be killed rather than surrender. And they sought to take as many Germans as they could with them. Companies F and I of the 18th Infantry, able to get a moment to breathe and then refocus, began to actively defend their trenches. They engaged Germans from the open, meaning... They were out of their holes and blazing away while exposed to the enemy. While the infantry and the artillery each responded strongly to the Germans, there was no real coordination between the two branches. A chaotic situation suddenly became worse, and the attacking Germans signaled for retreat. The stormtrooppen, as quickly as they had sliced into the American lines, now turned and dashed back across the shell cratered and wet no man's land for their own trenches. They took back a dozen Americans with them as prisoners. The rest of the day saw an intense artillery duel take place that kept both sides firing for hours. By zero six thirty, just fifty minutes after it had begun, Unternehmen Einladung was over. 49 Americans had become casualties, and the count for the Germans was 40. American leadership saw the results of the raid as proof of an American success, as they'd fought back strongly. The Germans saw the raid as proof that new tactics in artillery and infiltration worked. They also learned a few things about their new American adversary. The infantryman was a fighter. In particular, German veterans of the Einladung Raid noted the Americans were good with revolvers. American junior officers were seen as inexperienced and thus ineffective. By the same token, French officers saw American senior officers as uncoordinated. The infantry and artillery didn't talk to each other, which to the battle-hardened and war-weary French was complete amateur nonsense. The line here on the Vuevres now became more active, as artillery duels became commonplace. Trench raids also occurred, with each side viciously attacking the other. In early April, the U.S. 26th Infantry Division took over the trenches from Aprimont to Fliret. A division staffed by salty New Englanders, the 26th was nicknamed the Yankee Division. It had been the first National Guard and the second American division to arrive in France. On the left of the Yankee Division's front, Aprimont's environs and the nearby Bois Brûle woods were a hot spot for German shells. The Bois Brule woods and ridge lay to the slight northwest of Aprimont, and to the southwest of the village Lake Cut three hundred twenty two or hill. 322, a hill nicknamed the Gooseneck. The Americans held the Bois Brulee in a salient and the Gooseneck further down. The Germans held Aprimont itself. The lines here were dangerously close, with no man's land about 100 meters wide. There was a communication trench that ran through no man's land and connected both the American and German trenches. Only a wall of sandbags divided it. It was here that the Western Massachusetts-based 104th Infantry Regiment under Colonel George Shelton stood in the line. From April 6th through the 9th, these Bay State boys were subjected to nearly constant artillery fire. Amidst the barrage, new heavy German shells were also impacting. They were registering and this was a sure sign that an attack was being prepared by the 5th Landwehr Division opposite them. It came on April 10th at 4.45 in the morning when the leftmost 3rd Battalion and the neighboring French regiment on the left were plastered with high explosive and gas shells. American artillery positions behind the lines were also targeted, but this told Colonel John Sherborne of the 101st Massachusetts Field Artillery that a full attack was underway. In the morning brouillard, French for fog, it was hard to see, and the phone lines had already been cut by the bombardment. Flare pistols did the trick, and in minutes American shells were airborne, whistling and howling toward the German lines and no man's land. 800 German storm troops were caught in the open, by the quick reaction of the American gunners. The German attack, meant to take the bois Boulet and the Gooseneck, was off to a bad start. Surviving German soldiers who made it to the first line of American trenches encountered heavy fire. This was bad news, too. The Germans had encountered on the Yankees of the 104th, manning that first trench line. Two days of fighting followed around Apremont, and the 104th U.S. Infantry distinguished itself well. On the 12th of April, the Germans attacked again. The Sturm and Stassgruppen rushed into the American lines too quickly for artillery to be called down, but the U.S. 101st Trench Mortar Battery, the only such unit in the Voivre, responded with a wall of mortar shells aimed right at the Germans. A Sergeant John Dickerson and his crew fired their Stokes mortars at the oncoming enemy until heavy explosive shells killed the crew and severely wounded Dickerson. The trench mortars blunted the attack just long enough to get regular American artillery in the game. Ten minutes after the fighting began on 12th April, American guns were raining shells on German positions. The attackers soon found themselves cut off by enemy artillery falling behind them. Yet, the Germans were still somehow able to break into American and French lines, and communication between the French on the left and the doughboys on the right was terrible. It took a strong counterattack in the afternoon of the 12th by the doughboys of the 104th to wrench the Germans out of wherever they were hanging on. Fighting continued through the night, and by the end of the next day, 13th April, the so-called Battle of Apremont was over. German losses here were unknown, although the Americans did take some 40 of them prisoner. The losses to the Massachusetts 104th Infantry were considerable, as 60 men had been killed and some 140 wounded. Not an inch of ground had been lost, however, and this was duly noted. 117 men of the 104th would later receive the French Croix de Guerre, And the 104th Infantry itself would be awarded a unit citation of the Croix de Guerre by French General Fenelon Passaga, who heaped praise on the regiment's men. The 104th was the first American unit to receive a unit citation in the Great War. So all of this, it just goes to show, honestly, how badass Uh, Boston and the Bay State really are, it's true. While the Germans clearly learned that the American Doughboy was a scrapper, he hopefully also picked up an age-old lesson that can be summed up as, bro, don't mess with Boston. The Germans were left reeling from the lack of success at Aprimont, but a new attack was planned. This attack was to show the Americans what complete destruction looked like. American lines from La Eville village to the Bois de la Sonnard were to be smashed with more artillery than previously used, as the American artillery response had shown their guns needed silencing right away. Stormtroopen and Sauce were to break into the American trenches as far south as the southern end of the village of Sechepray, just a couple of kilometers from the front line, and destroy everything they captured. Soldiers, Equipment, dugouts, anything found was to be killed, wrecked, and or blown up. Seychre village itself was to be taken from the Americans and held for a day until the sector could be subjected to a scorched earth treatment. The attack was to be carried out with four battalions worth of assault troops. Problems arose with this plan, though. This new large scale raid was to be launched less than two weeks after the Apremont operation. The Germans needed more artillery, and with the massive offensives taking place up north, it was hard to justify more guns for what was still officially a quiet sector. The artillery officer overseeing that part of the operation was skeptical of the raid's aims, and he voiced his opinion that capturing and releasing a village back to the enemy simply gave him a victory he could claim. The plans were pushed forward and tweaked, with an emphasis on the destruction of Seychepret and any and all American fortified positions. More artillery was released to the 78th Reserve Division, and the Germans managed to sneak it into the area without French or American planes noticing. French aerial observation planes did pick up troops training in areas just behind the lines, and they correctly interpreted this as training for a new attack. The Germans banked on the Americans at Seychepret not being ready for an attack of the scale and intensity they planned to unleash. After a crushing bombardment, the American front lines would be broken and the Bois de Rémiers taken. From there, Seichepre would be taken and destroyed, with all U.S. positions also being destroyed in the process. The new attack would be codenamed Kirschblutter, or Cherry Blossom. That's so sweet. In the crosshairs of this new attack was the U.S. 102nd Infantry Regiment, composed of men from the New England state of Connecticut. In January, command of the 102nd had been given to Colonel John Henry Parker, also known as Machine Gun Parker. A tall and imposing figure, described by a French liaison officer as a gigantic Buffalo Bill, Parker was a Missouri native a West Point graduate, and a veteran of the Spanish-American War. He was also a passionate proselytizer of the machine gun, as well as a self-promoter. A Major General J. Franklin Bell said that Parker was, quote, a pestiferous, immodest ass, but has much ability notwithstanding, and his disagreeable qualities must simply be tolerated for the sake of his usefulness, end quote. Parker was a longtime subordinate and friend of General Blackjack Pershing, and so he was a well-connected guy. Parker was assigned to the 102nd Infantry in January 1918 in order to get the unit into shape for frontline duty, and he proceeded to do exactly that. By April, his nutmegs, as he called his men, uh, this is based on the Connecticut nickname of the Nutmeg State, Uh, His nutmegs were in the line at Seychepret and as ready as he could get them. In conjunction with French directives, the front line wasn't as heavily manned as before. Those doughboys left at the forward edge, however, were expected to die, defending their trench line if attacked. The line of resistance would be further back to just south of Seychepret, some one to two kilometers behind the front line. In between, the line of resistance and the front-line trenches would be the centers of resistance, outposts and positions where U.S. troops were expected to defend to the death. In the days after the fight at Aprimont, both the 102nd and the neighboring French 172e Regiment d'Infanterie, or 162nd Infantry Regiment, Suspected a German attack was coming soon, and they prepared as best they could. The conditions in the swampy sector were described anonymously in Colonel Finnegan's A Delicate Affair on the Western Front as, quote, When I came up to the front line that night, I could see no shelter for the men, but a little piece of elephant iron, or rather sheet iron, stuck in the trench side, mud and water up to my middle, there is a hole in the trench side under this iron, under which the men can crawl to keep dry and get a little sleep when not on guard. End quote. This source also stated that, quote, the stench around this trench is awful. Mud, stagnant water, broken pieces of rotten duckboard, refuse of all kinds, overflow from latrines four or more years old, parts of old clothing and numerous other things that the boys in the sources of supply don't have use for." End quote. As the days ticked forward in the cold of early spring the Germans made their final preparations. On the night of the 19th through the 20th the German Sturm and Stosstruppen swiftly and silently moved into their jump-off positions due north of Saichrep. There were artillery duels going on along the front, but overall the mood was one of hopeful apprehension. And the local front was very quiet that night, a sign to French old-timers that something was about to go very wrong. It did. At three in the morning on 20th April 1918, the night sky was torn apart by the claws of a thousand fire demons as German guns unleashed a devastating bombardment the 101st Infantry west of Seychepret, the 102nd Infantry at Seychepret, and the French 172th Regiment d'Infanterie all came under a withering firestorm of shells as the Germans targeted dugouts, trenches, observation posts, and any positions of note with uncanny accuracy. Almost with the first shots, nearly all telephone wires between the front and the rear Regiments to the U.S. 51st Brigade HQ and regiments to battalions were all cut. As the Americans were already a, quote, not meeting minimum standards, end quote, in the communications area, this now short, coordinated action would be near impossible. Runners were sent out to bridge the information gap almost immediately, but many doughboys would see their lives cut short by volunteering for or being assigned to this duty that day. Wire repairmen also risked life and limb to try to reconnect those shell-cut wires. The French, to the east of Seychepret, compared the German bombardment to those they had experienced at Verdun in 1916. The rumble could be heard in Metz and even as far away as Mainz, deep inside Germany itself. The Germans were brutally methodical in their artillery preparation. HE and gas were directed at American artillery emplacements, as well as the front line, forcing the inexperienced Americans to wear their primitive protective masks already reduced their reaction time significantly. Sibyl Trench, the front line trench that faced the Germans, was raked end over end with shells, as were the second line and communication trenches. Sechapre, already largely in ruins, was further knocked about with Minenwerfer shells and isolated by a box barrage of artillery shells. The Germans increased the volume of fire to drum fire, where shells fell so closely together one couldn't distinguish individual explosions. The Doughboys had never experienced anything like this, and Private Walter Wolf told of being lulled into senselessness by it all, and then we were rapidly snapped out of it by a rain of shells, falling thick and fast all about us. There was nothing to do but take cover, so away we went. but 177 beat me to it, and I found myself with a stinging wrist. The barrage lifted again, cutting off all retreat. The Americans were not ready for an artillery bombardment of this ferocity. Soldiers reported they could see the morning mists buffeted about by shell bursts, and the noise was impossibly loud. Dugouts collapsed under direct shell hits, killing or wounding the men huddling inside. In their lack of experience, some American officers sought to gather their men together for accountability, thus providing multiple kills when a shell landed and scored a direct hit. Elsewhere, small groups of doughboys found themselves cut off and alone in their section of battered trench. No one could communicate with higher headquarters on what to do. To the rear, regimental and brigade staffs were just realizing a major attack was underway. Again, however, American gunners began launching shells back at the Bosch within minutes of the bombardment beginning. I have to say, I'm really impressed. By the reaction time with the American artillery, I mean just minutes after a heavy enemy barrage began, they responded with a wall of fire and steel. Gunners labored to breathe and slam shells into smoking breeches in their masks as shells impacted around them. Sweat poured from their bodies despite the cold air of early spring. Gun crews were steadily taken out as the enemy shells continued to rain down around them, Yet those remaining continued to fire shell after shell after shell. Colonel Edward Logan, the commander of the 101st Infantry on the left and where Boston's airport gets its name, reported that he saw no sign of an enemy attack coming his way. And on the right, Colonel Bertrand of the French 162nd stated the same Bertrand was a little quicker in his thinking and he sent word that from his position in the Bois du Jury to the east, he was putting together a counterattack towards the Bois de Remier. He knew what was coming. Colonel Parker of the 102nd sent runners out to get the machine guns firing and putting out an indirect fire barrage as the Germans were coming his way. At 4.50 a.m., Nearly two hours after the artillery cratered the world around Sechepray, the Germans flooded in, well over 3,000 strong, through four attack points under the thick morning fog. From the east, one battalion-sized column of Sturmtruppen and pioneers ran headlong into the smoking stumps of the Bois de Remier, while another battalion of assault troops next to them slid in between the woods and the eastern edge of Sechepray. From the north, a 3rd battalion came down the Saint-Basson, road, taking them through no man's land and the front-line trenches and aiming towards the village itself. To the west, a 4th battalion cut around a small wood to head south and approach Seychepret from the south side. The village was to be cut off. The Germans were everywhere all at once. In Sibyl Trench on the front line, overpowering the staggering Americans there. They were in the Remier woods, and by 5.30 they were pouring into Seychepret itself. It was chaos. Like the Einladung raid and the Battle of Apremont, the Germans began attacking and destroying dugouts with brutal efficiency in Sybil Trench. Resistance was light, as there were few Americans left here to put up a fight. In the fog and smoke and noise, the stunned Doughboys were suddenly faced with or surrounded by the drawn faces of older-looking, coal-scuttle-helmeted Germans. Things changed as the Germans reached the second trench line. American machine guns suddenly opened up on the oncoming Germans, temporarily stalling advances as squads of storm troops engaged the Doughboys and others tried to outflank them. The attackers were introduced to baseball, when some Americans pitched their grenades with deadly accuracy. If you didn't know already, the battle for Seychelles was on. American troops in the immediate battle area began to wake up from the effects of the bombardment and the battle suddenly took on a more desperate note. Surrounded by Germans, Private Alvin Lugg fought like a demon with his bayonet and a handful of hand grenades and escaped. Corporal James Moody fired his show-show, the French Chauchat machine gun, at the enemy and, quote, piled him up proper, believe me, end quote. Combat became close, personal, dependent on split-second decisions that left either Dauboy or Frontschwein dead. In the Bois de Rémiers, the attack devolved into a wild melee. Fighting here became extremely close range even hand-to-hand as the doughboys smashed into the German spear points. Colonel Parker's machine guns went to work, putting out streams of fire that sliced into the gray-clad enemy. French Colonel Bertrand later noted that he had found a dead American machine gun team draped over their weapon. In front of them, just meters away, lay scores of dead and dying Germans. The New Englanders' orders were quote, no retreat, and we were determined to stay until the last man had been annihilated." End quote. Captain Arthur Locke of Mike Company followed his instructions. Alone and overwhelmed by the enemy, Locke fired his Springfield rifle shot after well-aimed shot as Germans worked their way around to surround him. Only after three emptied magazines could a squad of Stosstruppen get close enough to spray Locke with fire. Captain Griswold of Charlie Company fought from his command dugout, killing and wounding several Germans before he was forced to surrender. As he was led away by two Germans, one of them fell into a shell hole. Griswold body-slammed the remaining one and ran south, sprinting through two heavy bombardments to link up with Americans huddling in the ruins of Seychepret. There, he was able to give news of what was going on outside the village. Even though the American defense was rapidly stiffening, the German attack continued to push forward. Shells continued to impact in the area, rumbling and rocking the earth. As the 102nd Infantry Regiment struggled to coalesce together under bombardment and now infantry attack, the German army flooded into the village of Seycheprey. The time was 05:40. By 5.40 a.m., Seishui had been isolated by artillery and nearly every inch of the ruins hit with shrapnel, gas, high explosive, and Minenwerfer shells. The village was a rear area, a site where cooks and clerks could set up in the ruined homes and cook basic meals for the troops in the trenches just up ahead. Now the Germans came in from the north, their boldness dictating the speed of the attack. Sturmtruppen rushed in running around the church and moving south. As they continued to push through the village, they came upon an American machine gun nest. The machine gunners were attacked, wounded, and captured. This was about the farthest the storm troops would go, however. After the capture of the machine gun nest, the Germans kept moving on and they ran into Sergeant James Walsh of Alpha Company and a few of his men. A gun battle broke out, and although surrounded, Walsh and his doughboys held off the enemy the German advance stopped. A fierce battle for the ruins of the village now began. Storm troops and pioneers ran from position to position, throwing in grenades or loosing a stream of flame from Flammenwerfer to kill any dugout occupants who might still be resisting. As the Germans fanned out amongst the buildings, they found the 102nd Infantry's cooks. A flamethrower-wielding German stepped suddenly into the battered doorway of a building, ready to burn the occupants inside alive. A quick-thinking cook tossed a pot of water at the German, extinguishing his flame. Another cook, having just escaped the flames of a different attack, grabbed his meat cleaver and rapidly hacked two German soldiers to death. My God. Nearby, Corporal Charles Blanchard was cornered in a building with a few of his doughboys. A German flamethrower team set the building on fire. We saw at once it was going to be a fight for our lives, Blanchard said. Corporal and his men decided to go for it. They ran out of the building with bayonets fixed. The audacious move worked, with the Germans being scattered. Blanchard watched as one of his men drove his bayonet right through a stormtrooper's neck. At the south end of the village, Major George Rao, commander of the 1st Battalion, 102nd Infantry, rallied whatever men he could find. Cut off from his superiors and from any supporting artillery, Rao took it upon himself to begin a counterattack and clear the village of the enemy. Not quite ready for the ferocious fight the Americans gave, the German officers in seychelles gave a signal for retreat. They had American prisoners, American equipment, Rubber boots were especially prized, and their own dead and wounded to get back to their lines. It was time to go. There would be no holding the town. Major Rao himself, a first-generation American born to German parents, led his men through the ruins and the attack. They first cleared the center of the town and then worked their way to the north edge of the village. There they found the Germans had pulled back to Sibyl Trench. Rao had his men dig in where they were, by this time, it was seven in the morning, just four hours since the attack had begun. The situation overall was confused. To the east, Colonel Bertrand's poilus pushed on Bois and the Bois de Rémiers to clear them of Germans. The situation in Seicheprey and the Ramier woods remained unknown to American leadership behind the lines. Colonel Parker didn't receive his first situation report until nearly three hours after the battle began. There was little to no coordination between the infantry on the ground and their artillery behind them. Up above, American airplanes flew as the morning sun lit the new day, but they were coming way too late to have any impact. Things were made worse when the Germans lit up the entire battle zone with artillery at midday. As more and more shells rained down on the exhausted doughboys French and American leaders struggled to understand the Germans' objectives for the Seychepre attack. As the hours went by, reports of Germans massing not far away in Riche fanned a new apprehension. The attack never came. Artillery rocked and ripped the earth for the rest of the day. By the next morning, the 21st of April, 1918, a poorly thought-out plan had been readied to liberate the Bois de Remier and Sybil Trench. Major Gallant, the man assigned the charge of leading the assault, refused. On the grounds, he barely knew his men. He barely knew the ground. The men themselves were hardly ready for a full-on infantry assault, and he would not waste his troops so carelessly. Gallant, who'd paid his own way from the Philippines to France in order to fight, was later court-martialed and kicked out of the United States Army. The French on the right of the Connecticut 102nd Infantry wound up clearing the Bois de Remier, and in the fog and rain, Major Rao's ad hoc force was reinforced by more men. Patrols were pushed out, and Sybil Trench was reoccupied. By the night of the 21st, the lines had returned to where they had been nearly 48 hours before. The Battle of Seycheprey was overshadowed by the mammoth offensives taking place further to the north. And back in Germany, any mention of the fighting there was swallowed up by the death of Manfred von Richthofen, also known as the Red Baron, on the 21st of April. Still, the German generals took note of the events of the 20th of April. Erster Oberquartiermeister General der Infanterie Erich Ludendorff, by now practically the military dictator of Germany, later wrote in his memoirs that, quote, the Americans fought well, but our success had nevertheless been easy, end quote. From the book A Delicate Affair, we have the words of General von Golwitz's chief of staff, one Oberst Keller, who said years later, of the Americans taken prisoner at Seychelles, those Americans taken prisoner gave a good impression. In their new and perfect equipment, young and eager, they afforded us a picture of health and strength which, outwardly, was in strong contrast to that of our own troops and of the Allies, worn out after fighting for years. So, here we are. Who won? the Battle of Ah, We have to say the Germans here. They got in and they got out without too much difficulty, thus conducting their large-scale raid successfully. The German Sturm and Storstruppen lost 361 men, killed, wounded, or missing that day. Their greatest win at Seycheprey was the taking of 183 Americans as prisoners of war. These men were later photographed altogether, and the photos were distributed over the front by German pilots to show how many men had been seized. It was a big propaganda win for the German war effort. Sechapre was a bloody nose and a bloody mouth for the American Expeditionary Force. War was indeed not a sport. On top of the 183 men lost as prisoners, another 80 doughboys had been killed, and 166 wounded, losses totaling 429 men. The Germans had blasted their way through the American held trenches and deep into American held territory. The American defense had stiffened as the day went on, but it was based more on individual and small group initiative than a coordinated response led by junior and senior officers working under the structure of a definite plan. Both junior and senior American officers were seen as lacking. American artillery crews had definitely shown their worth. Over the course of the 20th of April, the crews of the Yankee Division's guns had fired some 30,000 shells. Throughout the entire day, about 100,000 shells had impacted in the battle area. seixi was completely destroyed with hardly a wall left standing. One bright spot for the United States Army was that despite an uncoordinated defense, the American Doughboy had showed to the German enemy again that he was a fighter and that he would learn quickly. The story of one American would make it all the way to German General von Golwitz, as well as becoming a bit of a local legend to German troops. Private Louis Zegra was one of three men in a mule wagon running supplies near the front when they were assaulted by a team of Stostruppen infiltrators just before the Seicheprey attack. When they were attacked, the other two men played dead, but Ziegler himself, a 25-year-old, second-generation American of German descent, very much came alive. In the wild terror of the assault, Ziegler was shot in the face, but the bullet bounced off his jaw and came out his nostril. The shock of getting shot probably deadened any feelings since Ziegler promptly began to knock out Germans with his fists. It literally took 20 or 30 Germans to get him down, and many of those Germans came up missing teeth. They finally had to club the young American with a rifle in order to knock him out and carry him back to German lines. General von Galwitz was so impressed by Ziegler's actions, he later mentioned them in his memoirs, talking about how he had, quote, defended himself mightily, and refused all testimony. End quote. The American doughboys sought to learn quickly, and in their education, they also tied in lessons from back home. A month later, after a memo came down from higher complaining how American soldiers weren't showing enough aggression on the battlefield, members of the 101st Infantry decided to follow their commander's orders. On a retribution raid meant to snatch some Germans as prisoners, the South Boston Irishmen of the 101st were seen crossing no man's land with a rifle on one shoulder and, quote, shillelagh clubs with barbed wire wrapped around the heavy end on the other, end quote. Once they broke into the German trenches, they proceeded to hand out beatdowns like it was nobody's business. And curiously, they took no prisoners. It wasn't so much a milleary military attack as it was a mob hit. The Doughboys learned quick that war was no sport and they gave out as good as they got. And one more time, I really have to say the lesson delivered here was don't mess with Boston because, bro, we know where you live. All right, folks. So we will leave it there. I am off now to get some reading down for both the Meuse-Aragon, and one tiny little project that I am going to make sure stays at one episode. Uh, However, I would like to make two plugs for books that contain much more information on the seychelles battle. The first book is Terence Finnegan's A Delicate Affair, America Learns to Fight a Modern War in the Vouvre. And the second book is Ed and Libby Klikowski's Eyewitnesses to the Great War, American Writers, Reporters, Volunteers, and Soldiers in France, 1914-1918. through Both books go into much more detail than that offered here. Links to Ed and Libby Klikowski's book will be posted on Twitter and the Facebook page. Some photos of Seychepret Village yesterday and today that Ed has shared with me will also be posted. Thank you, sir. So, questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com or talk to me on the Twitter at at ww1podcast. You can also go through the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. One little thing. If you have enjoyed the podcast and the work that goes into producing these episodes, Please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. What is Patreon? Patreon is a website where you can choose to support the artists, musicians, and podcasters you like by committing to donate an amount of your choosing every time new material is released. For the BFWWP, that would be every time a new episode is released. You can choose to give $1, $5, or up to $50 if you like. Uh, Peter Jackson, uh, looking at you for that $50. Every single dollar helps maintain the podcast by either going to server costs or by going towards new research materials. If you are interested, you can find us at patreon.com slash Battles of the First World War podcast. Patrons there get transcripts for each episode as well as early access to new episodes and a few other perks. Every transcript has a bibliography that cites the books used for the episode, and you'll have access to the episode a day earlier than through iTunes. Thanks for your consideration. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Take care.